Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 53 as we have our brief meditation on a psalm this afternoon. Psalm 53 is nearly identical to Psalm 14. So, I've already done this psalm meditation and we can all go home. No, uh, there is a little bit of a difference and there's a reason, obviously, that God puts these words in the Psalter twice. And like I said, there are some differences here. Uh, translators might make choices that make them appear more different sometimes, but the main differences in the Hebrew text are really only three in number. Uh, one is that the caption at the beginning of each Psalm 14 and 53 are different. Psalm 14 says merely, to the choir master of David. And we'll get into the details of the caption for this psalm in a minute. A second difference is where Psalm 14 uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, or the Lord in capital letters, as you'll see it usually translated in our texts, in several places, Psalm 14. Psalm 53 says God, more generically. And then the third big difference is the text of verse 6 of Psalm 14 is replaced with what appears as the second half of verse 5 here in Psalm 53. In that place, the 14th Psalm reads, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So talking to the wicked, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. As we'll see shortly, in place of that Psalm, uh, or that verse there, Psalm 53, has some lines that sound more like a reference to a military victory that David was, was talking about. The first four verses of this psalm describe the characteristics of those who reject the true God. Verse 5 describes the consequences of rejecting God. And verse 6 is an expression of hope in the coming salvation of God's people. It's a very short psalm. First, though, uh, let's, uh, let's consider the caption, which is more detailed than that of Psalm 14. It says, To the choir master, according to... Mahalath, a masculine of David. Uh, to the choir master, of course, means that David wrote the psalm, or at least he prepared it here to be used in public worship. So he's got some instructions for the choir master, where he's simply saying, Here, choir master, pay attention, here's a psalm to be sung in public worship. God inspired me to write this. And so we know that David was thinking of this as being sung in public worship. According to the Mahalath, uh, Mahalath is the name of a musical instrument, uh, a type of lyre, like a small harp. Uh, but here it probably refers, most scholars think, to a tune or a musical style. So, uh, so he's not simply saying you can only play it on this particular harp, but, but more probably a musical style or maybe a tune that was associated with that kind of harp or lyre. Uh, a masculine, as we've noted before, probably means something like a contemplation. It's not absolutely certain that that's what it means. Uh, some Bibles will just give you a footnote that says probably a liturgical or musical notation. Right? But, but it does seem to come from the word that means to contemplate. So it uh, probably means something like a contemplation. And that would be fitting because like Psalm 14, this is considered one of the wisdom psalms. A psalm that encourages us to reflect on something that's important about human nature about who God is, about the condition of the world, things like that. The bulk of this psalm here, verses 1 through 4, really describe the characteristics of those who reject God 
for who he truly is. So let's get into what the psalm has to say. It begins, just as Psalm 14 does, saying this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool here, the fool in question, isn't simply somebody with a low IQ. Very easy for us to say, well, there's a foolish man who does because he does this or that, or he can't think clearly or whatever. And if we're honest, of course, we all can look back on our own deeds and thoughts and think, well, that was foolish. I was being a fool in that moment. But this isn't simply talking about having the inability to think clearly in a moment or refusing to think clearly in a moment, though it might be connected somewhat to that. But this is talking about spiritual and moral foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So like those in Romans chapter 1, who, as Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The fool in question here rejects the true God for who he really is. That's the problem in Romans 1. That's the problem here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Perhaps such a fool is an outright atheist. Somebody who openly will say to others, or at least will honestly say to themselves, as they think, there is no God. In fact, they might think that you are foolish, or convince themselves, or try to, that you are foolish for believing there is a God. But more often, the fool who says in his heart there is no God is simply someone who has replaced the Creator with another God or gods of their own imagining. That's what Romans 1 mainly talks about. Or it can simply be that in the moment, someone says in his heart there is no God. In fact, in some sense, every time we sin, we have to do that. We have to say in our hearts, there is no God who sees what I'm doing. So it might be somebody who openly acknowledges and normally is convinced there is a God, but who in his heart in the moment says, God doesn't see what I'm doing. God doesn't care what I'm doing. God doesn't care what I'm thinking. And that's the foolish condition of mankind. Because as we see, as we go on with the next several verses, we see this is not talking about most people are not this, but there are a few people who are just particularly fools who say there is no God, or who live as if there is no God. What people call sometimes practical or pragmatic atheism, right? Where even people can give lip service to there being a God, but they live as if there is no God. But this is really talking about the whole human race, unless God has intervened and changed the individual's heart. This is the normal human condition since the fall into sin. So the result of such folly is not just an intellectual shortcoming, but it is the general condition of fallen mankind, all of whom, apart from God's grace, reject God for who he really is. Either they make a God of their own imagining in their heads, or they just say there is no God, or they worship idols. But David says here, about the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And really he's actually declaring this is what God says. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. And lest we think that the none there is qualified simply by the category of those few people who 
say in their heart there is no God, because of course we do in good biblical hermeneutics. We have to, when we see a word like all or none, we have to look in context. Does that mean none of the whole human race or all of the whole human race or all of a particular category of people? That's appropriate to do. And we might look here and say, well, okay, there's just this particular category of people who say in their heart there is no God and they're corrupt and they do abominable iniquity. There is none of them who does good. <coughs> But that's shot down by verse 2, which tells us that Paul, not Paul here, thinking of Romans 1, that David and God are thinking of the whole human race. Verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That is our natural state since our fall into sin. Unless God intervenes to change your nature or my nature, there is not one of us, the whole human race, who does good. Think of Hebrews 11 telling us that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. So unless God has intervened and poured out grace into your life and given you the faith whereby you lay hold of Christ, you can't even do good on your own. Not one of the children of man, the descendants of Adam, seeks after God. Rather, the whole human race is corrupt unless God redeems from out of that human race a people for himself. And if he hadn't have done that, there wouldn't have been no David to write this psalm. To be able to speak, as we'll see here shortly, to juxtapose the human race in general against God's people. The whole human race, though, is corrupt. And without God's grace intervening and saving some, we would all be in sin. And when he does intervene, the world persecutes this people that he sets apart for, for himself in its foolish rejection of God. So part of, the, of sinful mankind's rejection of God is that in our normal sinful state, we also reject God's people. And we see this in verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my bread as they, or eat up my people rather, as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? So there we see the foolishness touching having no knowledge, but it's no knowledge of eternal things, of godly things. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. They persecute God's people, destroy them the way that they would destroy bread. They use them for their own good purposes, as they think. But verse 5 then describes some consequences of doing that. Consequences of rejecting God and persecuting His people. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. They are in great terror where there is no terror. Wow. They live lives in abject terror ultimately. Even when they might feel temporarily secure, they will be in terror even if there seems to be no terror for them now. Then David, unlike in Psalm 14, uses language that sounds like a reference to a military victory, where he says, For God scatters the bones of him 
who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. So you, as one of Christ's people, might experience this. You might experience persecution, the world treating you like bread to be eaten up, so to speak. But God will scatter the bones of the people who persecute His people and don't repent, those who encamp against you. God puts them to shame, for He has rejected them even as they have rejected Him. The world might seek to destroy God's people, but Christ will subdue all of His and our enemies, as we say in the Shorter Catechism. And finally then, verse 6 is an expression of hope in the coming salvation of God's people. So because you know that God will bring His wrath upon those who persecute His church, you can have confidence that you will be vindicated. The first part of the last verse sounds like a request. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. As if David were saying, boy, I really wish this could happen. As if he weren't sure that it could. But he is, as we read the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse speaks with certainty. That's true biblical hope. In the Bible, when we have hope and we're told to have hope, it isn't because uh, it isn't that we're encouraged to have a vague kind of wish. I wish God would do some nice things for us. No, hope is understanding. You understand by faith what God's promises are, and you know they're going to come true. Hope is that eager expectation for those things to come true. Things we know God will do. When God restores the fortunes of His people. So notice that that. David almost sounds like he's not sure about it at the first part of the verse. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. But then, notice it's not an if, it's a when. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Salvation indeed has come out of Zion. As the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth, let God's chosen people rejoice and be glad as Christ is subduing to himself all of his and our enemies. So indeed, let's rejoice and be glad as we sing this very psalm. We'll turn in our Psalters to Psalm 53. Why don't we stand together as we're able and we'll close this afternoon's devotional time with Psalm 53.